0: Hey guys, it's Mishka, and welcome to Bookish Bonanza.
1: Hello everybody, just a quick notice before we get in. I am going to be having this as the kind of last week of this series and I'm going to take a little bit of a break because I've fallen into a bit of a reading slump, and I've kind of run out of ideas so I just want um maybe a month maybe a couple of weeks maybe a couple of months you know just I don't know how long it'll be just to refresh my mind and get back into reading and yeah so I hopefully won't be gone for too long um but I will give you two episodes this week as a little sorry for being late again this is the kind of thing you know a little sorry for being late again and kind of a see you next series all right thank you i hope you enjoy this
0: hello everybody so today i'm going to be reading the first page slash first couple of pages slash first section of some of my favorite books um, so this is basically kind of, I've called it the Temptations episode, because I'm going to read the first section and then basically try and get you guys to read some of my favourite books. And there are some that I've, um, I've definitely made sure that they are all spoiler free. I think they're all either first books in the series or standalones, Um But, for example, I've got the first book from the Infernal Devices here, Clockwork Angel. Um, And that's because the introduction to City of Bones isn't particularly captivating. Um, I didn't want to go further into the series because I didn't want to accidentally spoil anyone. So, um, get comfy, because this is going to be a good one. So, without further ado, let's jump in with Clockwork Angel. So, we're going to be reading the first page of the prologue. And then also the first page of chapter one because you get two different perspectives and they're both equally captivating and you get kind of uh, the insight some of the characters as well. So the first chapter of the prologue of Clockwork Angel London April 1878 the demon exploded in a shower of ichor and guts William Herondale jerked back the dagger he was holding but it was too late. The vicious acid of the demon's blood had already begun to eat away at the shining blade. He swore and tossed the weapon aside. It landed in a filthy puddle and commenced smouldering like a doused match. The demon itself, of course, had vanished, dispatched to whatever hellish world it could come from, though without not, not without leaving a mess behind. Jem! Will turned, calling round. Where are you? Did you see that? Killed it with one blow. Not bad, eh? There was no answer to Will's shout. His hunting partner had been standing behind him in the damp, and crooked street a few moments before, guiding his back. Will was positive, but now Will was alone in the shadows. He frowned in an annoyance, and it was much less fun showing off without Jem to show off too. He glanced behind him to where the street narrowed into a passage that gave into the black heaving water of the Thames in the distance. So that's the first page of the prologue, and um, where we meet Will and kind of meet Jem, like we hear about Jem. And then I'm also going to be reading the first page of chapter one so you hear a little bit about Tessa. This is set six weeks later. Chapter one, the dark house. The sisters would like to see you in their chambers, Miss Grey. Tessa set the book she'd been reading down on the bedside table and turned to see Miranda standing in the doorway of her small room, just as she did at this time every day, delivering the same message she delivered every day. In the moment, Tessa would ask her to wait in the corridor and Miranda would leave the room. Ten minutes later, she'd return and say the same thing again. If Tessa didn't come obediently after a few of these attempts, Miranda would seize her and drag her, kicking and screaming, downstairs to the hot, stinking room where the Dark Sisters waited. So, as you can tell, it's really intense. It's really high um, high stakes. It's just such a really good book. It's an amazing book. Okay, um, next up, I'm going to be reading. Uh, this is a little bit of self-persuasion because this is on my TBR um but i'm going to be reading the first page of the name of the wind by patrick rothfuss i didn't even open this book yet oh wait that's a lie. i have um oh my gosh there's a really big map in here the four corners of civilization it's cool. um i don't know whether i should read the first well the first page is the prologue so i'll just do that and i can like say i've done that <clears throat> prologue a silence of three parts it was night again, the Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. The most obvious part was a hollow, echoing quiet, made by things that were lacking. If there had been a wind, it would have sighed through the trees, set the inn sign creaking on its hooks, and brushed the silence down the road like trailing autumn leaves. If there had been a crowd, even a handful of men inside the inn, they would have filled the silence with conversation and laughter, the clatter and clamour one expects from a drinking house during the dark hours of the night. If there had been music, But no, of course there was no music. In fact, there were none of these things, and so the silence remained. Inside the waystone, a pair of men huddled at one corner of the bar. They drank with quiet determination, avoiding serious discussions and troubling news. In doing this, they added small, sullen silence to the larger, hollow one. It made an arrow of sorts, a counterpoint. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listen for an hour, you might begin to feel it in the wooden floor underfoot. And in the rough splintering barrels behind the bar, it was in the weight of the black, the black stone hearth, with the heat of a long dead fire, was in the slow back and forth of a of a white linen cloth, rubbing, rubbing along the grain of the bar, and it was in the hands of the man who stood there polishing a stretch of mahogany that already gleamed in the lamplight. The man had true red hair, red as a flame. His eyes were dark and distant and he moved with the subtle certainty that comes from knowing many things. The waste dim was his, just as the third silence is his. This was appropriate, as it was the greatest silence of the three wrapping the others inside itself. It was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy and a great river of smooth stone. It was the patient, cut flower sound of a man who was waiting to die. That sounds so good. I genuinely can't wait to jump into that. That sounded amazing. I have not read that before. I think two of these are like, like, these are genuine reactions. I have not read that before. That was crazy. That sounds really good. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to jump into that. I'm so more excited to jump into that now. But anyway, time's ticking on as it is. So, the next one I'm going to be reading is the first page of the interview with the vampire by Anne Rice. Part One I see, said the vampire thoughtfully, and slowly he walked along the room towards the window. For a long time he stood there against the dim light from the Divis- uh, Divisadero Street and the passing beams of traffic. The boy could see the furnishings of the room more clearly now. The round oak table, the chairs, a wash basin hung on one wall the mirror. He set his briefcase on the table and waited. ''But how much tape do you have with you?'' asked the vampire, turning now so the boy could see his profile. ''Enough for the story of a life?'' ''Sure, it's a good life. Sometimes, Sometimes I interview as many as three or four people a night, if I'm lucky, but it has to be a good story. That's only fair, isn't it?'' ''Admirably fair,'' the vampire answered. ''I would like to tell you the story of my life, then. I would like to do that very much.'' ''Great,'' said the boy, and quickly he removed the small tape recorder from his briefcase making a check for the cassette and the batteries. I'm really anxious to hear you, why you believe this. Why you know, said the vampire abruptly. We can't begin that way. Is your equipment ready? Yes, said the boy. Then sit down. I'm going to turn on the overhead light. But I thought vampires didn't like light, said the boy. If you think the dark adds to the atmosphere. But then he stopped. The vampire was watching him with his back to the window. The boy could make out nothing in his face now. He's, and something about like the still figure that distracted him. He started to say something again but nothing, oh sorry, oh no, say something again but he said nothing, that's so good, I do love that book a lot, I am really looking forward to rereading that one. Okay, so the next one I'm going to be doing is Simon vs the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli. Um, There are so many pages. Chapter one. It's a weirdly subtle conversation. I almost don't notice I'm being blackmailed. We're sitting in metal folding chairs backstage, and Martin Addison says I read your email. What? I look up. Earlier in the library, not on purpose, obviously. You read my email. Well, I used the computer right after you. He says. And when I typed in Gmail, it popped up. It pulled up your account. You probably should have logged out. I stare at him, dumbfounded. He taps his foot against the leg of his chair. So, what's the point of the fake name, he asked. Well, I'd say the point of the fake name was to keep people like marston Addison from knowing my secret identity. So, I guess that worked out brilliantly. That was only a short one. Um, but I think... Oh, no, I'm going to save that one for last. Um, okay, so next up, I'm going to do the first page of the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins. Um, if I can get it open. Okay. Hmm. Chapter 1. Lanus released the fistful of cabbage in the pot of boiling water and swore that one day it would never pass his lips again. But this was not that day. He needed to eat a large bowl of the anemic stuff and drink every drop of broth to prevent his stomach from growling during the reaping ceremony. It was one of a long list of precautions that he took to mask the fact that his family, despite residing in the penthouse of the capital's most opulent department building, was as poor as district scum. That at 18, the heir to the once great house of snow had nothing to live on but sweats. His shirt for the reaping was worrying him. He had an acceptable pair of dark dress pants bought on the black market last year, but the shirt was what, was what people looked at. Fortunately, the academy provided the uniforms it required for daily use. For today's ceremony, however, students were instructed to be dressed fashionably, or the solemnity of the occasion dictated. Tigris had said to trust her, and he did. Only his cousin's cleverness with a needle had saved him so far. Still, he couldn't expect miracles. The shirt they dug out from the back of the wardrobe, his father's, from better days, was stained and yellowed with age. Half the buttons missing, a cigarette burn on one cuff, too damaged to sell even the worst of times, and this was to be his reaping shirt. This morning he had gone to her room at daybreak. Only to find both his cousin and the shirt missing. Not a good sign. Had tigris given up on the old thing. And braved the black market in some last effort ditch. To find him proper clothing. Oh my gosh. So that was that one. I do love the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. It's a really really good read. Uh, especially if you like the Hunger Games series. So if you haven't already. Jump on that train. Um, But yeah. Make sure you uh, get on that one. <clears throat> the next book I'm going to be doing is Cinder by Marissa Meyer. Um. Okay. So I'm this. This book is really, really good. I have already read really it, and it's amazing. <clears throat> book one, chapter one. The screw through Cinder's ankle had rusted. The engraved cross marks worn to a mangled circle. Her knuckles ached from forcing the screwdriver into this joint as she struggled to loosen the screw one, one gritting twist after another. By the time it was extracted far enough for her to wrench free with her prosthetic steel hand, the hairline threads had been stripped clean. Tossing the screwdriver onto the table, Cinder gripped her heel and yanked the book from its socket. A spark singed her fingertips and she jerked away, leaving the foot to dangle from a tangle of red and yellow wires. She slumped back with a relieved groan. The sense of release hovered at the end of those wires, freedom. Having loathed the two small foot for four years, she swore to never put the piece of junk back on again. She just hoped Ico would be back soon with its replacement. Cinder was the only full-service mechanic in Nubei Beijing's weekly market. Oh, I love that book so much. It's such a great book. It's just genuinely amazing. Um, Okay, the next one I'm kind of gonna be doing for old times' sake, more than anything, and I'm gonna be reading the first page of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling. Mm. <laughs> Chapter One: The Boy Who Lived. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number Four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious. Because they just didn't hold to such nonsense mr dursley was the director of a firm called grunnings which made drills he was a big beefy man with hardly any neck although he did have a very large moustache mrs dursley was thin and blonde and had nearly twice the usual amount of neck which came in very useful as she spent so much of her time craning over garden fences spying on the neighbors the dursleys had a small son called dudley and in their opinion there was no finer boy anywhere The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and their greatest fear was that somebody would discover it. They didn't think they could bear it if someone else found out about the Potters. Mrs. Potter was Mrs. Dursley's sister, but they hadn't met for several years. In fact, Mrs. Dursley pretended she didn't have a sister, because her sister and her good-for-nothing husband were as un as it was possible to be. The Dursleys shuddered to think what the neighbours would say if the Potters arrived in the street. The Dursleys knew that the Potters had a small son, too, but they would never even seen him. This boy was another good reason for keeping the potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. When Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke up on a dull grey Tuesday, our story starts, there was no nothing about the cloudy sky outside to suggest that strange and mysterious things would soon be happening all over the country. Mr. Dursley hummed as he picked up his most boring type of work, and Mrs. Dursley gossiped away happily as she wrestled a screaming Dudley into his high chair. So that was that one. I do adore the Harry Potter books. They are just so... They're such a big part of me. I've had this book for so long. Like, it's just kind of falling apart at the moment. But I do love it. It's such a good book. It's just so sweet. Tomorrow's between... Without too long, I'm going to have to start handling this with gloves. It's just so old. (laughs) Okay. The next one I'm going to be doing is Six of Crows. By Lee Bardugo. This is a pretty really good book as well. I have already read this. I will tell you if I haven't read something. But if I didn't say anything, just assume that I have. Um, okay. Oh, there's two maps in this book as well. It's really, really pretty maps. Um. So, hmm. I always forget the, um part one shadow business. Chapter one juice. Juice had two problems: the moon and his mustache. He was supposed to be making his rounds at the Hoed House, but for the last 15 minutes he'd been hovering around the southeast wall of the gardens, trying to think of something clever and romantic to say to Anya. If only Anya's eyes were blue like the sea or green like an emerald. Instead, her eyes were brown. Lovely, dreamy, melted chocolate brown? Rabbit fur brown? Just tell her she's got skin like moonlight, his friend Pieter had said. Girls love that. A perfect solution. But the Ketterdam weather was not cooperating. There been no breeze off the harbour that day and a grey milk fog had wreathed the city's canals and crooked alleys in a damp. Even here, among the mansions of the Geldstraat, the air hung thick with the smell of fish and bilge water and smoke from the refineries in the city's outer islands had smeared the night sky in a briny haze. The full moon looked less like a jewel than a yellowy blister in need of lancing. So that was that one. Um, I do always forget, though, that... um. Uh, the first chapter of the Six of Crows and Cricket Kingdom is from like a complete strangers perspective. Like you don't hear from this person for the rest of the book. Um, but yeah, I forgot that it was from a completely different perspective. You know, what? I might read the first page of Inej's chapter as well. I mean, I've got time. Why not? Yeah. I'm going to read the first uh, page of chapter two as well, which is from one of the main characters. Um, so that you kind of get a bit of a insight into the, one of the main characters. <clears throat> Chapter 2, Inesh. Kaz Brekha didn't need a reason. Those were the words whispered on the streets of Ketterdam and taverns and coffee houses in the dark and bleeding alleys of the pleasure district known as the Barrel. The boy they called Dirty Hands didn't need a reason any more than he needed permission to break a leg, sever an alliance, or change a man's fortunes with the turn of a card. Of course they were wrong. Inage considered as she crossed the bridge over the Black Waters, to the Burns Canal, to the deserted main square at the front of the exchange. Every act of violence was deliberate, and every favour came with enough strings attached to stage a puppet show. Kaz always had his reasons. Inej could never be sure they were good ones, especially tonight. Inej checked her knives, silently reciting their names as she always did when she thought there might be trouble. It was a practical habit, but a comfort too. The blades were her companion. She liked knowing they were ready for whatever the night might bring. She saw Kaz and the others gathered around a great stone arch that marked the, marked the eastern entrance to the exchange. I do like Inej. I think Inej is really cool, um, and I do love Kaz as well. Kaz is awesome. Um, but yeah, so that was Six of Crows. I do, I do love Six of Crows um next we have divergent before we jump into the ones i really love um uh, so next up we have divergent so without further ado let's jump right in oh yeah it starts with the iconic line chapter one there is one mirror in my house it's behind a sliding panel in the hallway upstairs our faction allows me to stand in front of it on the second day of every third month The day my mother cuts my hair. I sit on the stool and my mother stands behind me with the scissors trimming. The strands fall on the floor in a dull blonde ring. When she finishes, she pulls my hair away from my face and twists it into a knot. I note how calm she looks and how focused she is. She is well practiced in the art of losing herself. I can't say the same of myself. I sneak a look at my reflection when she isn't paying attention. Not for the sake of vanity, but out of curiosity. A lot can happen to a person's appearance in three months. So that is a page of Divergence, uh, which I do love, again. Okay, now we have another one, and the only other one that I have not yet read. So this is, again, a genuine reaction, because I have not touched this book yet. Um, so, without further ado, let's jump. Oh, it's got a really nice map. Sorry. Let's jump right in, if I can find it. There we go. One. Block, where? I can't tell you where. You're supposed to follow my movements. Well, then slow down. Mother rolls his eyes. You can't tell an enemy soldier to slow down. I grin at his exasperation, but my smile is short-lived as the dull edge of his practice sword swipes under my knees. I slam onto the dusty prairie with a back-popping thud. My blade flying from my hands and vanishing into the thigh high grass nearby. Hand-to-hand combat has always been my weakest area. I blame Sir and the fact that he didn't start training me until I was almost eleven. A few additional sessions of the sword might have helped me catch more than three of Mother's blows now. Okay, so that's all you can catch. This. That does sound interesting. Um it, 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 it does sound exciting. Um uh, so sounds like she's just having a little bit of a training session with someone called Mather. um okay next up we have the night circus and there's like a big like kind of prologue section i don't know how many pages it is it won't be too long and so i'm going to read all of that because i really do love this book it's three pages long so it doesn't actually say prologue um it just says anticipation anticipation the circus arrives without warning no announcements precede it no paper notices or downtown posts and billboards no mentions or advertisements in local newspapers it is simply there when yesterday it was not the towering tents are striped in white and black no golds and crimsons to be seen no color at all save for the neighboring trees and the grass of the surrounding fields black and white stripes on gray sky Countless tents of varying shapes and sizes with an elaborate wrought iron fence encasing them in a colourless world. Even what little ground is visible from outside is black or white, painted or powdered or treated with some other circus trick. But it's not open for business, not just yet. Within hours, everyone in town has heard about it. By afternoon, the news has spread several towns over. Word of mouth is a more effective method of advertisement than typeset words and exclamation points on paper pamphlets or posters. It is impressive and unusual news, the sudden appearance of mysterious circus. People marvel at the staggering height of the tallest tents. They stare at the clock that sits just inside the gates that no one could properly describe. And the black sign painted in white letters that hangs upon the gates, the one that reads opens at nightfall, closes at dawn. What kind of a circus is only open at night? People ask. No one has a proper answer, yet, as dusk approaches, there is a substantial crowd of spectators gathering outside the gate. You are amongst them, of course. Your curiosity got the best of you, as curiosity is wont to do. You stand in the fading light, the scarf around your neck, pulled up against the chilly evening breeze, waiting to see for yourself exactly what kind of circus only opens once the sun sets. The ticket booth, clearly visible behind the gates, is closed and barred. The tents are still, save when they riffle over ever so slightly in the wind. The only movement within the circus is the clock that ticks by the passing minutes. Such a wonder of sculpture can even be called the clock. The circus looks abandoned and empty, but you think you can perhaps smell caramel wafting through the evening breeze, beneath the crisp scent of autumn leaves, a subtle sweetness at the edges of the cold. The sun disappears completely beyond the horizon, and the remaining luminosity shifts from dusk to twilight people around you are growing restless from waiting a sea of shuffling feet murmuring about abandoning the endeavor in search of some place warmer to pass the evening you yourself are debating departing when it happens first there is a popping sound it is barely audible over the wind and conversation a soft noise like a kettle about to boil for tea then comes the light All over the tents, small lights begin to flicker as though the entirety of the circus is covered in particularly bright fireflies. The waiting crowd quiets as it watches this display of illumination. Someone near you gasps. A small child claps his hands with glee at the sight. When the tents all aglow, sparkling against the night sky, the sign appears. Stretched across the top of the gate, hidden in curls of iron, more firefly-like lights, flicker to life. They pop as they brighten, some accompanied by a shower of glowing white sparks and a bit of smoke. The people nearest to the gaze take a few steps back. At first it is only a random pattern of lights, of lights. but as more of them ignite it becomes clear that they are aligned in scripted letters. First a C is distinguishable, followed by more letters. A, Q, oddly, and several Es. When the final bulb pops the light, and the smoke and sparks dissipate. It's finally legible, this elaborate incandescent line, sign. Leaning to your left to gain a better view, you can see that it reads Le Cirque du Rêve. Some in the crowd smile knowingly, while others frown and look questioningly at their neighbors. A the child nearly tugs on her mother's sleeve, begging to know what it says. The Circus of Dreams comes the reply. The girl smiles delightedly. Then the iron gates shudder and unlock, seemingly by their own volition. They swing outward, inviting the crowd up inside. Now the circus is open. Now you may enter. It's not all. Um, by the way, it's not all in the second person. That some there are like bits scattered throughout it. Uh, like every couple of chapters, there's one that's like set in the second person, but the rest of it's written in the third person. This book I love so much. It's just so beautiful. It's so fantastic. And yeah, anyway, that's it for this episode. Don't forget, you can reach me at uh, bookishbonanza at gmail.com or at bookishbonanza if you want my Instagram. I post uh, pictures of all the books that are featured in each episode. Um, And I hope you can contact me. Also, you can email any recommendation requests you have if you want a book and you're looking for something suspicious. specific um you can email me your kind of conditioned and i will feature it in an episode um but yeah so i hope to hear from you and keep reading um and have a good day bye guys